Welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. This is your host, Matt Zemek. And, uh, you know, Sakib and I are doing a lot of Wimbledon retrospectives during what would have been the second week of the Wimbledon fortnight in 2020. Obviously, we don't have a tournament to talk about, but we can certainly relive the past. Uh, boy, it just feels so weird to not have a Manic Monday order of play to discuss on Middle Sunday. Uh, that's what uh, that, we're recording this on Middle Sunday afternoon, and it's just so jarring. But the next best thing, if we don't have live tennis to talk about, we can talk about Wimbledon in the open era. And to do that again is our in-house contributor, expert analyst, Mert Ertunga. You can follow him on, on Twitter at Mertovs, M-E-R-T-O-V-S. T, the letter T, desk, Murtov's T desk on Twitter. He has his own blog site and uh, we, we really value his contributions. Mert Ertunga, welcome back to the Tennis with an Accent podcast. Thank you, Matt. Always delighted to be here. Yeah. So let's, uh, now this is, this is going to be Wimbledon and, and more specifically a focus on women's tennis in the first half of the open era. So basically from the start of the open era in 1968 through the the latter portions of the 20th century not so much on the 21st century because that's really very familiar to virtually every tennis fan in our audience we want to kind of go a little bit deeper into the past and unpack some of the nuances from the latter portion of the 20th century so um comment on now this we're going i'm going to, I'm going to kind of string a few things together in one shot and because i know you have a lot to say We'll be able to ask some follow-up questions or pause for various uh, specific details. But comment on the state of the women's game when the Open Era arrived in 1968 and then taking us through that first cluster of years in 1968 through 1973 at Wimbledon and then focusing specifically on 1973, a hinge point year. So 68 and then flowing through 1973. Sure, and uh, you know, in in the mid in the mid sixties, of course, the amateur tour and the majors are are struggling, and then this, the 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 story is fairly well known. But uh, the, in 1967, there's a uh, uh, amateur tennis is really struggling. So in 1968 arrives open uh, open era tennis, and uh, when it arrives, we're in in the in women's tennis. We're smack in the middle. Into and if we're going to, you know, center the discussion on Wimbledon, uh, the Open Era arrives smack in the middle of a run of uh, attacking players, uh, serving volleyers, net rushers, and uh, since Althea Gibson's first title in 1957, uh, there had been an abundance of serving volleyers, net rushers who played the uh, semifinals and finals at Wimbledon. From in, in from the 60s into 1973, that particular year you mentioned, there's a reason why um, why I think that's an important year. But before we get there, from you know throughout the 1960s all the way to 1973, you got Billie Jean King winning uh, multiple titles, Margaret Court and uh, and Maria Bueno, you know all three of them winning multiple titles, and you have um, Angela Mortimer, Karen Sussman. Um, and Jones and Ivan Gulagong winning a title or, or two here and there too during that 13, 14 year period. And these are all, you know, attacking style players, mostly serving volleyers, almost exclusively serving volleyers. And it's not just that they win it, but uh, these players, they play one another in the finals too, and, almost, and, and in pretty much the semifinals also. So it's all, it's all centered on serving volleying 
and net skills. With the open uh, era's arrival in 1968, that becomes even more pr pronounced. You know, take a player like um, Nancy Ritchie, for example, uh, Matt, uh, you know, she wins the Australian Open title in 1967, which is uh, the year before it turns open, just before the arrival of open tennis, but does not fit the profile of a, of a strict, rigid serving volleyer. And uh, therefore, she manages to win the French on clay in, uh, in 1968, the first open one. But although she won Australian title in 1967 as an amateur on grass, she never wins another major the rest of her career. Her best show at Wimbledon was to reach the semifinal in 1969. And uh, she also reaches the final in 1969 at, at, at the U.S. Open. But, uh, you know, this, the, the, of course, this is, again, to, to underline the fact that uh, plenty of um, uh, serving volleyers dominate that era. And, um, and then, you know, the, there's also a mixture of wood and metal rackets being used. Uh, the first three years of the, of the Open era, uh, those three titles, 1968, 69, 70, are won by women using metal frame with a sweet spot smaller than a hockey, you know, a hockey puck. And I kid you not, these, I mean, the sweet spot here is really, really small. Uh, Billie Jean King and Ann Jones win it uh, using the T2000, the racket that Jimmy Connors made famous later in the 70s, but uh, BJK and uh, Ann Jones used it uh, to win Wimbledon in the late 60s. And uh, Margaret Court uses a Kemold, a brand nobody probably recognized recognize today. Uh, then, um, you know, Ivan Gulagong joins Billie Jean King and Margaret Court as we enter the 70s, as the three powerhouses, so to speak, at Wimbledon. And then soon arrives Chris Evert, who signals for the first time ever a shift in playing styles. Uh, you know, in, in the 80s, uh, technology, along with a significant improvement in the players' approach to professionalism, will come. And, and you know, then you'll see players going from no coach to, to one coach or, or to a, a multiple team. But back then, it's basically a player, her racket, and attacking and, uh, and rushing the net for the most part. And uh, if if uh, it, and then 1973 arrives, um, and it's a special year, Matt, because this is the year of the men's boycott. So uh, the, the you know there's some spotlight on that as an event. There there's also the uh, you know the battle of the sexes match early, uh, earlier in the year, but uh, because oh, the of the well, battle of the sexes was September. Battle of Sex was September. Okay, I'm sorry. Then a little bit later that year, but the but the the year of the men's boycott at Wimbledon basically puts the spotlight on uh, on the women's tournament in in kind of a quirky way, you know. And uh, and uh, because although there's some attention on the men's boycott, well, you want to watch the best tennis. There's the there's the women's draw because they didn't they don't have a boycott and boy do do they deliver the women the top eight seeds all reach the quarterfinals and it's probably the best women's tennis had to uh, had to offer by far and the top four seeds make it to the semifinals that's uh, Billie Jean King, Ivan Gulagong, Margaret Court and Chris Evert you know who's seeded fourth at the time and it's it's kind of an iconic tournament underrated. Uh, by today's standards, especially if observed from the prism of where Chris Everett stood at the time. You know, she was the so-called outsider or outcast, if you will, for, for several reasons. Uh, she was the lone baseliner among serving volleyers. 
she was still seen as the as the unwary teenager, as the eighteen year old teenager pitted against seasoned powerhouse powerhouses like uh, uh, the you know Billie Jean King and uh, and um, and Margaret Courtman. Ivan Gulagong was twenty two years old, but accomplished by then. Had a major title, a couple of semifinal appearances on all majors. And uh, Chris Evert was the, also an outsider in terms of playing style. She hit a two-handed backhand. She was the uh, only one who, you, who consistently used a, a shot that had produced something other than a slice. You know, she could, could hit a drive, had a bit of a, had minimal spin, but nonetheless, she was the only one hitting some top spin. Uh, the three other semifinalists sliced their backhands 99% of the time, even using the slice for the majority of the time to attempt passing shots. And, uh, and Chris Everett also did some what's what was considered weird things at the time, like changing her grip from forehand to backhand, still rare at the time. She would drop the second ball in her hand if her first serve went in. So you, you had this ball rolling a couple of meters behind the baseline while the next two or three shots were hit. And the ball would remain there until the end of the point. And sometimes she would even forget Matt dropping the ball after the first serve. And because she had, she had to hit a two-handed backhand, would remember it later, wouldn't do it in the next shot or two, which in which case you had the ball rolling inside the court, actually, while the point was going on. And, and that um, wasn't a let at the time? No, not at the time. But I believe she was told about it or, or that the, the, that was considered uh, in those years, because because uh, slightly later, a year or two later, you you no longer see her do that. She 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 then starts begins to ask uh, the ball boy for the second ball. You know, after uh, after serving the first ball, if she misses the first serve, then she turns around and asks the ball boy for the second one and stops holding two balls in her hand. But uh, but no, at the time no, and she wasn't the only one doing it, but she was the most prominent one doing it. And uh, but but again, you know, go, going back to 1973, as an 18-year-old, she could have easily been out of her depth with that field. But no, um, you know, to be fair, she had reached semifinals in three majors already three before that. But the first one, the first one was in, um, I believe, 1971 U.S. Open, her first major ever. But the 1973 Wimbledon is her first major final and prelude to the lofty period of her dominance in the years to come. You know, saying, and she significantly alters the spotlight in women's tennis, along with uh, with Martina Navratilova. So she's the, she, you know, as, as far as the game style goes, she is the first one to make two-handed backhand cool. She also had a forehand drop shot that uh, that was very hard to pick. That uh, that most other players use their backhands for drop shots, whereas Kersevert used her forehand mostly. But uh, yeah, she was an outsider, but nonetheless. She introduces that um, that uh, baseline style game to Wimbledon on the women's side in the early 70s. All right. Uh, so much to unpack about these years in women's tennis history, particularly at Wimbledon. One thing I, that I, I'm noticing as I look over the various uh, championship matchups at the time, one of the two, Margaret Smith Court, Billie Jean King, formerly Billie Jean Moffat, one of the two was in a Wimbledon women's singles final every year in an 11-year period of 1963 through 1973. Really, really remarkable string that the two put together. Um, and they, bo they both met in the 1963 final 
And then in the especially memorable 1970 final, 14-12, 11-9, uh, what, are, what are your highlights and foremost takeaways from Margaret Court versus Billie Jean King at Wimbledon and how their Wimbledon careers went in different directions with, with Billie Jean clearly surpassing Margaret Court at the All England Club? Well, Billie Jean King, very high IQ player, tremendous backhand slice. Uh, great mover at the net. She, she was 5'3", but she could hit the high volley very well, the high backhand volley, for example. And she, has, she was quick, so she was hard to pass at the net. Her, you know, her footwork often gets overlooked because of her other qualities like technique and, and, and her high IQ. But uh, she also, you know, Billie Jean King also possessed specialty skills like um, the ability to place her, her overheads with pinpoint accuracy. You know, again, remember, she's, she's a short player. She's 5'3", so, so not only does she have to um, watch out for the overhead and, and have some power on it, but also she has to place it fairly well uh, the, in order to put the ball away. She handled pickup volleys and half volleys beautifully, you know, and, and, and had a wicked backhand drop shot. And now... You know, could Margaret uh, Court do these things? Yes, she could also, but but not to the extent that uh, that Billie Jean, not to the variety. And and let's put it this way: she she didn't use it with as much uh, pizzazz as Billie Jean King did. You know, she Billie Jean King also had an ag- kind of an aggressive on court demeanor. You know, wearing her emotions on her sleeves, which was somewhat rare at the time. You know, she made fist pumps and yelled, come on to herself uh, uh, regularly, which is which is not something that you saw players do back then. And uh, and the fact that she was, you know, quite athletic and possessed all those skills early uh, and used them, you know, put them to use on the court, I think kept her in uh, a lot longer than people thought, uh, uh, you know, she would. But uh, but this is not to undermine Margaret Court by any means, you know, because because she 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 all she could do many of those things herself. She also had uh, had IIQ, high IQ. It's just that she, uh, you know, Billie Jean King just uh, just survived longer at, at Wimbledon and, uh, and 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 was able to because of her footwork and her uh, her her general motivated uh, disposition, I should say, you know, ended up staying in the game a lot longer. Talking about Chris Evert, Mert, um, th- now this question, you know, relates to Wimbledon, but it involves a different major tournament. And of course, you know, in the, in the early 1970s, when Evert first came to prominence, we, you referenced her 1971 U.S. Open semifinal against Billie Jean King. Of course, at that point in time, the U.S. Open was still at Forest Hills and played on grass. Then, of course, it went to uh, green clay for three years from 1975 through 1977 before the relocation to the USTA National Tennis Center in 1978, which was hardcore. Uh, do you think that the, the reality that the U.S. Open was on grass in the early 1970s helped ever adjust more quickly to Wimbledon grass? And also the second part, Mert, do you think that the U.S. Open switch away from grass in the mid-1970s Hurt ever in the late 1970s and early 1980s at Wimbledon. Matt, before um, 
before you before we go on to that question, there is something about uh, you know I, I, when you started talking, I remembered this about uh, Margaret Court and Billie Jean King. Going back to your previous question, that I that I would like to mention, if that's okay. Absolutely. Okay, you know, because because you because you brought up that fourteen to twelve, fourteen, twelve, eleven, nine match in nineteen seventy finals, and this reminds me because I talked about rackets earlier. Um, you know, when Margaret Court defeats. Uh, Billie Jean King on on that year. That's the year that Billie Jean King went back to Wood Racket, and uh, she she played with uh, with uh, T two thousand, you know, 60, 68, 69, and then goes back to Wood Racket, and you know Margaret Court won the first two majors of, of the year on that year, and uh, and in that match, I remember that match 14, 12, 11, 9, Margaret Court wins her because I watched it several times. Uh, she Margaret Court wins that match on her sixth match point with both players ailing badly. And it could have gone both ways because, you know, Billie Jean King also had chances to take the upper hand on both sets. Now, Margaret Court had a severe ankle injury and was prompted to play following an injection in that match. But, but the doctor told her that the injection would wear off after about two hours. So she was in a, in a way, you know, in a way she had, she really didn't have a choice but to finish it in two sets and she was frequent. You can see her frequently shake her taped ankle in the extended games of the match. Billie Jean King, for her part, had a knee injury that began to strikingly hamper her movement. And in the late stages of the second set, you have, you know, you, you see her not even serving volley much because that requires that explosive first step. And 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 lo and behold, Billie Jean King has to have a knee surgery shortly after that match, which keeps her out of the U.S. Open two months later. And by the way, Matt, you know, we talked about. Uh, Chris Everett's uh, habit of, you know, dropping the ball, a quirky habit, you know, uh, if she makes the first serve and drops the second ball. Well, Wimbledon had a quirky uh, tradition that they, they finally did away with 1974. They did not have chairs to sit on during game changes. So the players had to stand during game changes. They, you know, they would go to the changeover and had to stand. And imagine, you know, you watch that uh, those late stages of the second set between Margaret Court and Billie Jean King, and both women are in pain, and uh, and they're struggling to even move between points, and they go to a game change at uh, you know nine eight in the second set, and they can't even sit down. You know, that's uh, th- that's an interesting side anecdote as well. Okay, I have to ask: Were they allowed to like lean on the net or the chair of the chair umpire or a drink dispenser <laughs> of any kind? Well, they, what they did, what what they used to do, I guess. Uh, the, yeah, sure, you could, you know, they could put, uh, they could lean on the umpire's chair. I'm sure, but you never, you never saw them do that. I guess because that that makes it look, uh huh, uh, you know, on. Let's yeah. put it this way: that that makes them that makes you look weak, perhaps. So you know, you what you see them standing most of the time, doing most and of the time, is they're standing and you know grabbing a drink, toweling themselves, but they're standing up. They're not sitting down. There are no chairs. Yeah, and I mean, I mean, I, I you know, this might seem like very minor and inconsequential to a lot of listeners, but one has to remember a couple things. One, in in those times, there was a much more macho element to sports, and like team sports in the United States, like college football players weren't given water in summer practice. And books and movies have been written about teams that, you know, didn't have any water for like two hour practices under these taskmaster coaches. Those teams were celebrated in popular culture for being tough and manly. 
And the other thing, Mert, is that uh, in terms of tennis, you know, in the early 1970s, before 1974, Billie Jean King was trying to get the Virginia Slims tour off the ground with Gladys Heldman and and Chris Everett and, and other contemporaries. So if they did show, quote unquote, weakness, I mean, obviously, we would not regard that as a sign of weakness. They're just trying to protect their bodies. But, you know, in the popular culture of the time, if they did show what many people in the public would view as weakness, that would undercut the financial economic viability of starting a women's only tour. So no wonder they, they didn't do it. There, there were many legitimate political economic reasons for avoiding that. Of course, and to, you know, by today's standards, with what, what we do, I, I, what anybody would, uh, I'd imagine, is just you. You just sit down on the grass. You, you would just simply sit down and, and have your drink and rest, you know, for a minute. But uh, but no, you know, they had to stand up, and and it's really painful. Uh, you know, that was, it was just a really painful scene to to watch both Court and and Billie Jean King. You know, even between the points, they have. Uh, you know they have to watch out how they're walking or how they how they are stepping, and yet uh, and yet you know they can't even sit down during the game change over. But uh, yeah, and, so and, that's. And we also have to mention, Mark, that this was the last major tournament before Jimmy Van Allen's tiebreaker came into existence months later that summer at the 1970 U.S. Open in Forest Hills, um, and and also this was one year after the Pancho Gonzalez. Charlie Passarell Wimbledon match, which I think it, to many people is regarded as kind of the final ultimate catalyst for the creation of the tiebreaker. You know, that was a match which had a 24-22 set, a I believe a 16-14 set, and another set of at least 20 games, and, and that helped create the momentum for the tiebreak, but Wimbledon had not yet adopted it for the King Court match. Uh, and the 1970 tournament as a whole. So one final question on the 1970 match, Mert, and, and related to what you've said, if King wins the second set to send it to a third, any possibility of a double retirement? And, and moreover, has there ever been a double retirement in which both players were so hurt that they could not finish the same match? No, well, here, I, I would assume that what would have happened, Matt, is... Uh, if it did go to a third set, there's a there's a good, very good chance that that match would not have ended. Not only that, but uh, both women, knowing that each uh, the other is hurting, would probably continue as far or, or go as far as they could, hoping that the other one would retire. I don't see an I don't see a scenario where both of them would retire at the same time. I mean, you know, you you just wait for the other to retire before you, so that you win the match by default. <laughs> It, it, it's fascinating to contemplate. Okay, so so as we continue with our conversation, um, one more, this is not about uh, Billie Jean King, Margaret Court, or Chris Everett, but more general to the era, and that is that you know if the if open tennis had not emerged in 1968 and and we had continued with the amateur era, you know, so Billie Jean King uh, was played. I mean, she made Wimbledon finals. Uh, three different times as an amateur, 63, 66, and 67, before continuing on and making, you know, three more consecutive finals at the start of the open era, 68 through 70. And then, of course, again, in 72 and 73, uh, and, and then 75 as well. 
uh, if if the open era doesn't occur and we stay in the era era of amateur tennis, what do you think happens? That we, would would Billie Jean King have continued to play Wimbledon for for that long a time? Uh, you know, was there? I mean, you know, the men had established a barnstorming circuit. Uh, w- would the women have you know tried to basically do the Virginia Slims tour uh, it, without um, the the advent of the open era? Do you think that? women's tennis continues on a somewhat similar course or, or that it's radically different if uh, the open era doesn't emerge in 68? Well, if we, if we take that kind of speculation, we can go in all types of directions, right? But I think we can all agree. Yeah, but I believe we can all agree that women's tennis would definitely continue in some form or fashion. And, uh, and, you, and you did have, uh, you know, superstars uh, on, of, on their own rights in, on the women's side. And, uh, you know, Matt, for example, a lot of the exhibition plays, exhibition playing back in the, you know, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, consisted of a group of three, four players or six players touring around the world and playing over and over again. You would have players playing each other 50 times in a year, uh, you know, over a period of, I don't know, 70 days touring the world or even just a couple of players touring the world and playing one another in front of you know sold out arenas or 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 or, um, or um, civic centers, you know pl- f- over and over again they would just play each other and and that's that then there would there would be a promoter and that's how you would make your money. Now imagine if the open era did not arrive uh, and you had Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova touring around the world in the 1970s and 80s playing each other over and over again. Imagine how much money they would make. So it, yes, you would, you know, professional tennis and amateur tennis would would go on both um, on the women's and, and and men's side in the same way, I would imagine. Okay, I was just struck in particular that you know Billie Jean King played several Wimbledon's as an amateur, uh, Margaret Court as well, um, and I don't think I I don't think there was the same level of longevity as amateur players on the men's side. Is that a is that a reasonable assumption? Well, Ken Rosewell, uh, you know, played um, uh, played in the amateurs and in the professionals with uh, with quite a lot of success, and and, and no, that the longevity the longevity was there on the men's side too. I would say, you know, that there are several players that played uh, from the nineteen sixties into the seventies, just as uh, was the case on the women's side. You know, back then uh, you, it, it wasn't as physical uh, as physically demanding as it is today. You know, today it's more, much more physically demanding. But then again, today there is also the introduction of you know personal fitness trainers and an advanced knowledge of uh, of of the body, which allows players to train a certain way so that they can play longer. You know, in their careers. But uh, now, today, you know, that's why you see champions playing well past their 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 thirties into their late thirties and still be successful. But back then, it wasn't as physically demanding. So even though there was there was less knowledge, they were able to continue for a long time. It's that middle portion in the 90s, you know, the players in the 1980s and 1990s that felt the strict high physical demand, but yet didn't have perhaps access to knowledge and data as much as they do today. So therefore, their you know their their um, their um, careers would end uh, shorter. They would retire late twenties or early thirties at the most. You rarely saw anybody play until the age of thirty-five, in the um, in the eighties and nineties. 
Wow, that that's fascinating. You know, we we often talk about the term, you know, like a sweet spot, like the just the right period of time. And and so for you, the late '80s, early '90s was the exact opposite of a sweet spot. I guess we could call it a sour spot in terms of players' longevity. That, yes, that's, it, that's that's a great insight. Yeah, if you take it in, you know, if you take it in that strict scope, yes, I believe so. Yeah. Okay. So um, now, now this is this is something that a lot of listeners might not be very consciously aware of that when we talk about the Chris Everett, Martina Navratilova rivalry, uh, not just at Wimbledon, but as a whole, you know, they met in the 1976 Wimbledon semifinals. And of course, you know, these are two iconic champions of the sport. So we remember their finals the most. And, you know, we talked about on our French Open Classic podcast a month ago about their meetings in Paris. So now we're obviously going to spend some time talking about their finals at Wimbledon, but in in ter- in the process of talking about all these finals, that seventy six semifinal often gets overlooked. So there's a st- so the mid nineteen seventies is a story of Chris Everett coming to full prominence at Wimbledon, and then Martina rising to challenge her, and that seventy six semifinal is a part of that story. So t- tell that story because I know it's something you wanted to focus on. Well, you know that's that's uh, that's their first. That's the first time they're playing on grass, right? In nineteen in, in nineteen seventy six on on the, uh, at Wimbledon. I'm sorry, at Wimbledon, and uh, it's their first of nine encounters there. And and we arrive um, to that match at 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 a, at a period of full dominance by Chris Evert. You know, nineteen seventy three. We just mentioned a, a while back. Chris Evert reaches the final for the first time. And loses in the finals, uh, and uh, and then in 1974, that's kind of her, you know, 1973-1974 period is Chris Evert's rise to power, so to speak, and uh, and from 1974 on, she absolutely dominates uh, women's tennis pretty much for the rest of the 1970s. But but if we were to, you know, since we're since we're centering our discussion on uh, on Wimbledon and and grass by extension. Uh, the, the first time that uh, Everton and Evertlow face each other at Wimbledon is 1976, the, mat- the match that you just mentioned. And at that point, Matt, Chris Everett has a, a crushing 14-3 head-to-head record against Martina, including two wins in majors. Although Martina, coming into that match, Martina won their last WTA Tour match in, uh, I believe it was in Houston on carpet. But, uh, but, but, in any case, it's 14 to 3 Chris Evert with already two wins in majors. Now, Chris Evert wins that match in three sets, 6-3, 4-6, 6-4, on a windy day on, on center court. The, the, the wind, uh, you can see, you know, even the back drops in the, on the court uh, being, being impacted by the wind. But uh, Chris Evert wins that match. Very good match. Very tough match. But what what people should focus on if they if they ever get to watch a re, you know a, a do a rewatch of that match, it's it's almost it's very hard to recognize Martina here, and I and I mean not physically first of all, and 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 mentally, you know her demeanor on the court. You know you watch that match with Martina. You know she's 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 not as lean, defined, athletic as in the later years. Uh, she's uh, her comportment on the court is quite negative. She uh, she gripes at herself, puts her head under the towel. She's you know during game changes she slumps her cho- shoulders. She talks to herself uh, all the time, and 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 all of that reflects in her game. 
you know, it, it, her first step is not as quick. Her first serve, you know, the, 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 we reveled in uh, Martinez's first serve in the 80s, but her first serve at that time doesn't have the variety or, or explosiveness. Volleys are not crisp, um, especially on the forehand volley side. She's not as crisp and, and crisp, and her overhead is a liability. She misses a lot of overheads. And uh, so you, you watch that match. And even with that, she still takes Chris Everett to a third set in the in in the in six four you know and and uh, so therefore you know that's a, that's kind of a important match to remember because uh, if you watch uh, you know if you're if we're going to talk about women's tennis evolution games evolution it kind of runs parallel with martina navratilova in the 80s in the sense that she brings to the to, she brings a whole new dimension to the equation with the off-court training and physical fitness because you can already see the transformation in her physically and mentally uh, on on you know on court from their 1978 match on forward and in 1978 is when the shift occurs on grass between in the rivalry between the two. Okay, so I have to I have to point out that you know and and this is something a lot of people might miss about the Martina Chris rivalry. And that is their first major final. It wasn't at Wimbledon. It wasn't the U.S. Open. They met in the 1975 Roland Garros final. Martina somehow gets to the 75 final, you know, without the fitness that she developed in the early 1980s. She manages to get to the Roland Garros final in the mid-1970s when she was still a chubby, fast food eating uh, expat from, from Eastern Europe. Uh, and she ta- and she not only makes that final, she wins a set off ever and takes her three before for losing. How much did that um, 75 Roland Garros final not only shape the 76 Wimbledon semi, but also the, just the course of the rivalry in terms of giving Martina the awareness that she could compete with Chris Everett? Well, in that French Open final that you just mentioned, you know that's that's a good that's a good example because um, Chris Everett uh, out out conditions her in the third set too, and uh, in the third set you kind of see Martina you know the fade away as Chris Everett pretty much dominates it. I believe it was six one or six two in the in the third, but uh, but at, at that time though Martina you have to remember Martina Navratilova is new to the scene she. Uh, she 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 defects. That's the year she defected from Czechoslovakia and took up residence in the U.S. I believe in 1975. So there's a lot of uh, uncertainty in her life, and uh, and you know she probably didn't have, maybe she didn't have the the the, the time or, or 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 the the the, um, the environment in which to, to focus fully on uh, on how to improve her tennis but by the, by the time by 1976 or so you know martina probably herself would have a lot to say about this but from uh, from 1970 from 1976 on the next year they uh, you know she's much more established she starts uh, seeing that she can you know again she took ever to to a third set in the 1975 french open as as you uh, as you pointed out her chris everett's best surface and then in 1976, when she plays that, uh, you know, that tough match, 6-4 in the third, you know, Chris Everett wins it in three sets, but 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 uh, a tough match. I believe that she, um, you know, I believe that she felt like, she she probably felt like the first time she could beat her was on a fast court. You know, she did the first time that she could start beating uh, the Chris Everett is on a, on a fast court. And 
you know, the, and you have to wait really until 1978, Matt, to, to see the shift occurring in the Martinez-Chris rivalry on grass. And I'm, you know, I'm speaking on grass. Chris Everett still held the upper hand here throughout the 70s. But in 1978, uh, Martina defeats Chrissy in the Eastbourne Grass Court Tournament just a couple of weeks prior to Wimbledon. It's, it's a fantastic final. Martina comes back from 4-1 down, 5-3 down in the third set, saving multiple match points, and she wins at 9-7 in the fifth. And then a couple of weeks later at Wimbledon, she beats Chris, Chris, uh, Chris Everett, and she wins her first major, again coming back from 4-2 down in the final set. And, and once again, you can see an observed difference in Martina if you watch that 1978 final. She's, you know, again, quicker, stronger first serve, leaner, better coverage at the net, overheads improved, still not great, but improved. But more importantly, that has all reflected in, 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 in her demeanor for the positive. Her body language radiates confidence. And, and, and Chris, you know, Chris Everett senses it too. At, at five all, she... She just feels Martina's force coming onto her, and she gags three points away on unforced errors, fearing that Martina is going to attack the net again. And in my opinion, Matt, had Chris held on to those two matches, the one in Eastbourne and the one in uh, Wimbledon, you know, in, in the, the, to their third set leads, and won those matches, I think it would have delayed the so-called Martina takeover by a couple of years. Who knows? But... Uh, but in 19, those two matches played a big role because in 1979, Pendulum really begins to swing Martina's way on grass and she defeats Chrissy again, this time in straight sets. And from there on, you just know that uh, Chris Everett you know, has an uphill battle against Martina on grass to begin with, but overall in, on any surface in that rivalry. You know, I, so I was. So, would it be fair to say that the third set of that 1978 Wimbledon final is is really the the most, not necessarily the most important set Chris and Martina ever played, but the, certainly the most important set of Martina's Wimbledon career. That is, would you pretty much agree with that claim? Yes, I would. The third set, and and I would again, I would com combine that uh, with uh, with that third set of the Eastbourne tournament. You know, in so that's two matches on grass that Navratilova in a row beats Everett coming back from behind. You know, in in one of them saving multiple match points. So that's two in a row, and and I think in terms of their rivalry on grass, at least. I believe they play a crucial role. But yes, of course, Wimbledon, because it is Wimbledon, although she didn't save match points there, but because it was Wimbledon, probably plays a much larger role you know, on, the, on the aura. Now, let's, let's clarify something for, for, the, for, the rec, for the historical record. When was it precisely that, that Martina Navratilova um, you know, rededicated herself to physical fitness uh, with the help of... Uh, Renee Richards and, and Nancy Lieberman. I mean, because like in the 1981 U.S. Open final, when she lost the heartbreaker to Tracy Austin, uh, you know, and she cried afterwards and people think it was, she was crying because she lost. But it was actually because, you know, she was a newly uh, naturalized American citizen and she was feeling the love of the crowd. That's a popular misconception that, that she was hurt. It was more of she was just visibly moved. By everything but like when when she played that 81 final against austin you know she was a much trimmer fitter athlete and her 1982 83 84 
ascendancy was just around the corner. But so when precisely did Martina make the decision to rededicate herself to physical fitness and how how did do her matches in the late 1970s uh, play into that, if at all? Uh, it's probably around that same era, the, the same time, you know, we're talking late 70s, 90, very late 70s, 1979. 1980. I can't. Uh, I don't believe it was one of these things where she woke up one day and say, "You know what? I got I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring a new dimension to the game of women's tennis, and 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 start dedicating hours and hours off the court, you know, to 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 the health of my body, and um, and become just a physical, um, uh, you know, a physical force on the court. But uh, but but I would I would. Say that it's probably in the 1979, 1981, 1982, somewhere along those lines. And you can just see that she is more and more dominating the, uh, the, the and let's remember this, you know, we're talking about adding the physical dimension to the, to the high IQ and a wide variety of shots that she already possessed. So, you know, with, even if, even if uh, you know, she didn't pay attention to physical fitness that much, Martina would have still been a phenomenal player. But, uh, but nobody back then had, this situ- had, had, this, uh, had the whole package in the, sense that, uh, uh, in the sense that you had, you know, a, a great technique, an all-around game, a high IQ on the court, high intensity, and physically 100% fit. She's the first one to do to to bring that to the table on on the women's tennis side in the early 80s. And I believe that's one of the reasons why she uh, she lasted for so long, and why she now is referred to as one of the legends of the game. Well, one thing I'm trying to get at here is, did it did did experiences of victory or defeat, in your, your estimation, motivate Martina more? Uh, you know, and that might be a hard thing to pin down because obviously at Wimbledon, you know, in 78 and 79, she tasted great success, particularly against Chris Evert. Uh, it wasn't the same as, as the other tournaments. So uh, I'm just thinking, like, did Wimbledon inspire her to retire or what were their defeats in like 1980, 1981 that impressed upon her the need to get better? Maybe it's a little bit of both. What What's your overall sense of that well uh, it, it, this would be a hard question for for in, to for anyone to speculate i think uh, probably martina herself would be would be the only one who could uh, answer this answer this question correctly but uh, martina i think we can all agree that navratilova overall was a very driven player uh, by desire to become the best in everything and i would think that even the, the, you know the start of her um, the start of her upper hand, so to speak, over Chris Everett uh, in the late 70s at, on grass first and at Wimbledon first probably made her question, why can I not do that to her and the rest of the field in, in, you know, on, the, on the other service, surfaces too? And what do I need to do? And when you look at the, the great champions, I mean, I'm talking about the top five or 10 champions, women's and men's tennis combined in, in the open era, Matt, you know, one thing that you that they all have in common is this is 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 this riveting desire to 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 better themselves. Even though we as viewers might think, "Wow, you know, you can't get much better than that," they believe that they can, and uh, that you know that's Martina is definitely in that uh, in that elite uh, group of names. 
but uh, yeah, that's 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 really the best uh, educated speculation that I could that I can come up with to that question. Okay, now uh, you know an important part of documenting the story of Wimbledon or any other major tournament in over a broader range of time in the Open era involves uh, assessing the evolution and the changes in the style of play. So you know, with Everett and Navratilova meeting on the mountaintop in in, in multiple. In, in, well, in, in that 76 semi and in the 1978 and 79 finals and being so prominent, um, you know, Everett, the baseliner, Martina, the servant volleyer, it's a point of interest to gauge how the servant volley style clashed with uh, baseline tennis. So chart the development of those styles of play from the latter half of the 1970s into the early to mid 1980s, kind of 1983, 84 and how, you know, while Everett Martina merited all the focus, or most of the focus, there were other players underneath who reflected these changes in the sport over time. Yes, you know, you in, in the 1980s, technology comes along with, uh, with a, and, and there, not only technology comes along, but we touched on that a little bit earlier, uh, a different uh, vision in the player's approach to professionalism also comes along. You know, you, want, you go from... Uh, no coach, you know, to you know, players with no coach, or at the most one coach to players with a team around them. Uh, sometimes, you know, a couple of coaches or one coach and uh, a fitness trainer. Uh, the teams are still smaller than what you would see in today's tennis, you know, for, for especially for the top players. But uh, but things like uh, diet and off court training are become important factors in the, in the 80s. And along with that comes technology, you know, graphite rackets, bigger rackets with bigger heads, more, um, more power. And the progress of the Martina-Chris rivalry is the on-court portrait of that trend. You know, ever, ever dominates the rivalry in the 70s, but as Martina begins to foreground these various factors and begins to combine these in one package, strength, um, athleticism, uh, you know, physical fitness and endurance, and add that to her uh, to her game to what to what already exists of her game, uh, and then you have the arrival of more powerful rackets and man-made strings too. Let's let's also keep that in mind. You know, it was before uh, earlier it was mainly guts, but then these man-made strings come, and uh, that's how Martina takes over the rivalry over Chris Everett and takes over tennis in the eighties. And she begins to she give, she begins to impose her her game on everyone, and but what you what you do see you know Martinez is a servant volleyer correct and we just talked we talked earlier about the dominance of servant volleyers in the beginning of the open era, and then we talked about how Chris Everett was a complete outsider in the seventies you know in the middle of those attacking style players the two handed backhand was rare etc. Well by the at the end of the seventies. You know, you have uh, Tracy Austin who comes into the scene and she is another player with um, with, uh, uh, you know, a two handed backhand, a baseliner. She reaches the semis at Wimbledon and she wins the U.S. Open. In fact, 1979, as an outside note, Tracy Austin was Associated Press's choice for female athlete of the year. So here you go. Now you got another two handed backhand hitter playing from the baseline like uh, like Chris. And what you begin to see is that in the 1980s, Matt, you, you see this uh, on the court. 
Martina plays a baseline. First of all, let's remember that Martina plays nine finals in the, in the, throughout the 1980s. And she plays a baseliner in pretty much every one of those nine finals, except against Hannah Mandlikova, who serves in volleys on grass. You know, in, she plays her in, in a 1986 final. In that final, both players serve in volley cons consistently. But, but outside of that, in the 1980s, Martina has to play a baseliner in pretty much every one of her nine Wimbledon finals. The one Wimbledon final without Martina, which featured Chris Evert, and Hannah Mandlikova was still one base, one serving volleyer against a baseliner. And uh, so th that's where you begin to see the change. Now baseliners are coming along. Then in 1990, Martina plays Zena Garrison in the final. Zena Garrison reached, the, it was a surprise finalist that year. Now in that match, you saw again, two serving volleyers. But in the 1990s into 2000s, as technology becomes even more powerful, uh, then you then you start seeing returners, big returners, starting to take over. After the Garrison and Navratilova final in 1990, there's only one other final featuring two serving volleyers, and that's Yana Novotna against Natalie Tosia in 1998. And that 1998 final is the last time you will see two serving volleyers score off in the finals. Little did one know that year that. Not only would we never see that again, but we would not even see a serving volleyer in the finals ever again. I mean, unless I'm missing someone here, that's the last time we saw a, a, a true, two true serving volleyers, actually even one true serving volleyer in the final at Wimbledon. Why? Because the you know technology made, made rackets more powerful. Players can hit from the baseline harder. They can return harder. Balls were made a bit heavier. Uh, I mean, it, it became so power-oriented that balls were changed. You know, Wimbledon changed surface and balls to accommodate for, for speed. And, uh, and, 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 if, and, if, and if you don't mind me, you know, babbling on just for a little bit longer, you, you take a look at that 1998-2000 uh, stretch. In 1998, the 1998 final features the last time you see two serving volleyers, like we said, and then... In 1999, you have two baseliners with different styles, Lindsay Davenport, a hard baseline hitter, and Steffi Graf. And then in 2000, you have two power players from the baseline, Venus and Lindsay squared off. And that's, you know, that, it, it just takes off from there. Serve and volley game is basically non-existent in women's tennis from that point forward. Okay. In terms of charting the changes in racket technology and the changes in the Wimbledon Lane surface, the kind of grass, you know, which, which became a much more robust kind of grass in more recent years, as we know, as opposed to the chopped up grass in the 80s that, you know, where it, it, it serving by was a necessary tactic, not so much as a way of combating the opponent, but as a way of just being able to hit more balls uh, with a reliable bounce. In other words, a lack of a bounce. You'd want to get to the net as quickly as possible so that you wouldn't have to deal with a bad bounce. Uh, so in terms of, you know, was there a, when was the period of time when the surfaces, uh, and the racket technology both really accelerated? Was there kind of a gap between the two Were they both relatively concurrent? Let's uh, settle that so that our audience has a, a firmer idea of how those two different 
uh, but both very strong and influential changes uh, occurred at Wimbledon. Well, the racket technology came a little bit earlier, you know, in the in that the the, rag, the big racket revolution, so to speak, took place in the '80s. But then, from 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 the later '80s into the '90s and into early 2000s, you had already bigger, uh, you know, rackets with bigger sweet spots, uh, stronger, you know, uh, more powerful strings, you know, synthetic strings, or and uh, and. You know, not not necessarily gut-based uh, uh, strings, but synthetic strings. And then you had bigger rackets with stronger compositions. I don't know. You had uh, graphite. You had boron. You had uh, you know d- different types of uh, you know the, the racket manufacturers tweaked uh, uh, with different combinations to come up with the with 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 most powerful that uh, racket that you can see. The 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 surface change, Matt, and the ball change come as a consequence of that. Because because of the of the technology, the different technology, uh, developed technology, players are now hitting high octane serves, huge re- forehands and backhands, big returns, and it's just you know the the, the points are becoming shorter, and uh, coming to the net becomes more dangerous unless you come to the net on a great serve or on a great pass or on a great approach shot. But uh, uh, but points start becoming shorter and shorter because mostly because of big serves, and uh, so Wimbledon. What Wimbledon does is they start tweaking the surface in the late 90s for the first time. You know, this is I believe 1966 or 67, and what they start doing is they they start. Uh, the, the, I, I believe the grass becomes a little more dense, uh, and then in the early 2000, 2000, I believe the year 2000 or 2001, they changed the composition of the grass. And the balls become a little bit heavier. The ball turn, the balls turn heavier too, and therefore they turn slower. And what that does is, in general, it slows the courts down a little bit. Mostly, though, balls begin bouncing higher. So what then? What you have is you have your your volleyers who used to put the ball away, and and you know they would hit a crisp volley. The ball would barely bounce, or they would come into the net. With a heavy underslice backhand uh, shot, and and the ball would not raise off the ground. Now all of a sudden, those balls are raising off the ground. Or if they hit a good volley, the ball doesn't skid that much anymore. It kind of sits up just a tad more. So you have these physically super fit players, super fast players, getting to balls, uh, you know, as you know, retrieving balls or chasing down balls that they that you would not see them do five or six years earlier so therefore um, you know that's the, that's kind of the evolution of what took place with uh, with rackets balls and surfaces through those years but I'll, I'll let me illustrate that for you within with an example um, take uh, Venus Williams very early in her career at Wimbledon in 19 in 1998. She loses a terrific quarterfinal as an 18-year-old. She loses a terrific quarterfinal to Yana Novotna, you know, as an 18-year-old. And in that match, Matt, I, I, for those for those who are really interested in things like this, uh, or if you're a Venus or a Novotna fan, watch that match. And what you see there is you actually see Yana Novotna uh, starting to stay back. 
she serves, I mean, she serves in volleys. You're talking about a quintessential serving volley here on grass courts, Yana Novotna. And yet she starts staying back because Venus's returns are just coming back like bullets and, and, and hard right down to her feet. Sometimes, uh, you know, she feels like an old time 1960s police officers telling people, you know, traffic in traffic saying, OK, to my right, to my left. And, and balls are just passing her left and right at the net. And, and, and what Novotna does is she starts staying back after some of the serves. And what she does is she approaches on the next shot because Venus nails the return, thinking Novotna is serving and volleying. She gets the ball down low to Novotna's feet if she was at the net, but Novotna is not at the net. So she takes that ball that bounces at the service line and then approaches on the next shot. And it, t- and it takes all the, um, uh, you know, skill and experience of Novotna to overcome Venus Williams in that match. And then, uh, and then in the, in the next, next year's Venus again, loses to Steffi Graf in three sets in 1999. And once again, you can just see, uh, you know, Steffi Graf only wins that match because she has so much more experience and she's so seasoned. But, and then in 2000, Venus finally wins Wimbledon. And you can just see that little three year evolution of, of Venus and see how much uh, you know hard hitting has become a tactic because Yana Novotna, for example, when she beat Natalie Tozzi in the finals in that year in in uh, in uh, in 1998, she went back straight back to serve and volleying every single point because Tozzi is more of an old you know old school type of players the type of player and she didn't uh, her returns were not big booming returns that uh, that she needed to fear and she was able to execute. Her plan A, whereas against Venus, she had to switch from her plan A. So there, there's an example of a servant volleyer starting to struggle with the big returns and big power of, uh, of the new up-and-coming baseline hitters. How does uh, Martina Hingis fit into the story of the late 1990s and early 2000s along the lines you've just mentioned? Because, I mean, you know, she... I mean, not a classic servant volleyer, to be sure, but also not a pure power merchant. Where, where, does, where does her playing style fit in, and how did these changes affect her game for better or worse? Martina Hingis, you know, it's funny that you mentioned Martina Hingis, because in that 1998 uh, quarterfinals that I mentioned of uh, Jana Novotna beating you know, Venus Williams and winning the title, um, after she beats Venus, Novotna, after she beat Venus in the, in the quarterfinals that year, she played Hingis in the semifinals. And, yep. Nov- and Novotna had to do the same against Hingis again. You know, she, Hingis was hitting big returns, very skilled player, one of the most high-skilled players I've ever watched in the open era. And, but Novotna recognizes the same thing again, uh, again, uh, uh, versus uh, Hingis that she she noticed against Venus Williams, and she again starts to stay back on some of the shots because Hingis is just taking Novotna's serve uh, that that bounces a little bit higher and just you know bangs it back with uh, with a more powerful racket and Novotna has to get really quick to the net and get that first volley if she wants to have any success. And at times she realizes that that's not going to if she does that consistently it's not going to bring her success. So she starts staying back against her too. Now she also ends up beating her in that uh, in that match. And you know, like I said, in the finals against Tozzi, she plays a classic 100% serve and volley style. But uh, but getting back to Hingis, Hingis's skills were were super high. 
I do believe that she uh, she did not have. How do I put this? She did not have. She had the type of game that would have done very well if she played maybe a few years earlier. I think she would have won several titles at Wimbledon, but having played at the time that she did, right when uh, a new influx of uh, power hitters were coming along and, uh, and, and, and not allowing her time to, because she's a crafty player, Matt. I think is a crafty player. She builds up the point. She can drop shot, hit angles and everything, but she, she's the kind of player that, that uh, you know, uh, kind of puts down a, a certain plan and then, and then executes that plan during the, during the game. She's not a one-shot straight winner. And, um, and therefore, you know, when she won that 1997 title against Novotna in three sets, um, I think had, she, had that come along maybe a few years earlier, before the rise of Davenport, the Williams sisters, I think she would have had more, uh, more Wimbledon titles. But I don't believe that. Uh, I, I believe her game was still a little too skill-oriented and wasn't ready for that high-octane power on grass. I'm talking about a grass, of course. Well, and I think a lot like another Swiss person named Roger Federer that, you know, Hingis thrived on having a lower strike zone, you know, to hit her shots. And so when the ball, the average ball bounce became higher with the surface change that that, that you know, and she was not especially tall, that really put a crimp in her in her style. Yes, I would agree with that, uh, definitely. And, you know, High bounces also, the, the fact that the ball began to bounce a little bit higher uh, obviously favors, uh, you know, p- players who, who, who prefer to play from the baseline. Because, uh, and who are taller, the, like Venus and Davenport. Exactly. I mean, the, you know, the, 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 that's, a, that's perfect two examples right there. Because when you look at Venus and uh, Venus Williams and Lindsay Davenport, I think the easiest answer anybody could, uh, could give is, is if they were posed the following question, would they prefer hitting balls from below the hip level or would they prefer hitting balls above the hip level on the shoulder level? And there's no doubt that, you know, Venus Williams and Lindsay Davenport would much rather hit shots or make contact with ball above the, uh, above the hip level. And, uh, and, and, you know, the, the, the fact that that would have been extremely hard to do, um, Matt, back in the, uh, the grass of 1980s and early 1990s. Okay. Now you had told me uh, off the air before we started this broadcast, you have a few quirky anecdotes. So this is something I love. So let's, let's reach into the time capsule and dig out some of the quirky anecdotes that, that you uh, had planned for, for this show. Well, actually I mentioned them, uh, you know, one was the, uh, what oh, okay. The, All of yeah. them? I'm sure you have a few others. Yeah, well, the, the, you know, the one that, uh, the two that really stood out to me, or, or actually uh, one has been standing out for a long time because nobody ever talks about this, is how there were no chairs. You, you never hear anyone yeah. mention that. The, the fact that there were no chairs until 1974 is, is simply outrageous. And, uh, and you know, and, and, and I, I, I also find... Uh, you know, a lot of the things that Chris Everett did that I'm that we mentioned back when we talked about 1973 Wimbledon, you know, the like dropping one ball and, and having a forehand drop shot and 
and uh, you know switching grips. You know th- those are things by those day standards that are that are con- considered quite uh, quite quirky. But uh, yeah, I mean, well, well, we can always mention. You know, there's um, there's I believe um, uh, you know Wimbledon has has a lot of things like uh, uh, funny incidents like streakers running onto the court or, or bees bothering players or birds coming onto the court, but. Uh, but the two really quirky things were, were those two right there. Okay, well, let me, I, well, I can come up with a quirky detail, and that is that the w- Wimbledon women's final used to be played uh, at, least, at least a few times, or, le- or at least once, I know for sure, played on a Friday. Um, d- you know, that, so that had to have led to a compressed schedule for the women in those times. Was there a, was there a Wimbledon which you think that, you know, if we, if, we had a Saturday final as opposed to a Friday final in a 1970s Wimbledon women's tournament that, that the outcome might have been different, either in terms of just the brutal schedule, the I mean, one player maybe getting it more rest and instead of having a ragged performance in a Friday final, um, being able to play better on, on a Saturday. Uh, any uh, specific recollections along those lines? I don't think so. I think the players prepared accordingly, so I don't, I'm not sure that it would have made a, uh, the, the much of a difference. And, and also remember, in the 70s, you didn't have a full 128 draw. Uh, a lot of times you had uh, you know less than one. Nowadays we have 128. Yeah, early 1980s, that's true. Yeah, So and, 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 and the Saturday final came in 1981, I believe, uh, when, when they switched to a Saturday final on the yeah. women's side. So, you, so we're talking about strictly 70s, I don't think that made that big a difference because mentally you would have prepared that way. And, uh, and, you know, that's also with the middle Sunday without playing on the middle Sunday. So yes, there was some crunching, but, um, but I don't think it was that big a deal back, uh, back then. And it, what about the, the fact that Wimbledon threw, I believe it was 78, uh, could be wrong, but I think it was through 78, 71 through 78. Wimbledon, unlike the U S open had its tiebreaker at eight, eight in a set instead of six, six. Uh, did that influence the course of any Wimbledon tournaments in terms of uh, the stamina, fitness of the players that they went along? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure because you see a lot of, uh, you know, 8-6, uh, uh, nine, seven, nine, eight type of scores in, the, uh, in, in some of the score lines of not in the finals, but in the previous matches, you know, in the quarterfinals. And which, semi- you know, affects the cumulative fuel tank as you go along. I mean, that's something well, of course. we really been able to understand in the modern era that you know Federer, Djokovic, Nadal, they go through week one so smoothly it keeps their fuel tank full for the second week. So uh, I'm sure that those extended eight, you know, nine eight, nine seven, you know, sixteen game sets probably had an effect at some point along the line. Of course, the the the, the good thing here is because it's a it's a major. They do they do get days in between. Or, or you know, the the tournament is played through you know cr- through the course of two week period, or or in, in in that case, just like you mentioned, with the final being on Friday, over the course of a twelve day period. But they still have to play maximum of six matches, five matches. So uh, so it's doable, and uh, and and you know, being two out of three uh, on the women's side, I don't think that presented that 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 was as big a uh, factor as it was on on the men's game. But yes, that's uh, you know that isn't that strange that uh, Wimbledon always has to remain different. You know when yeah. when the tiebreaker is invented, Wimbledon says yes, okay, we'll adopt it. But hey, we're not going to do it at six all. We're going to do it at uh, at eight all. 
and then they they do that all you know all the way till like you said 1979 i believe so yeah i mean yeah it's 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 weird how wimbledon you know they they wimbledon also stuck to white balls much longer than any anyone else did um uh, if if i'm if i'm correct uh, you know they yeah. stuck with white balls all the way till gosh i don't want to be wrong here but 1986 maybe or 1987 whereas the other tournaments uh, you know switched um, a lot uh, quicker from white ball to to yellow tennis ball yeah and of course wimbledon had to be different with its uh, updated final set tiebreaker going to 12-12 you know and all, of course all four majors have <laughs> different approaches to that you know, that's you right you can't have uniformity in tennis <laughs> yes, of course. All four of them have different ones. Yeah. All right. So winding toward the end, this isn't our last topic, but we're getting toward the end. And so I um, want to save some of the best things for last. Best, The best women's player in the open era to never win Wimbledon. There are so many very, very good choices here. Let's go through that list and then your ultimate selection, Mert. Well, I think you would, you would have to go with... Uh, Few players to, to consider here for me would be uh, Justin Hennen, Hannah Mandlikova, uh, Gabriela Sabatini, and Monica Seles. And and I'm going to go with uh, with Monica Seles here because um, just simply because first of all I think in, 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 along the four names that I mentioned. Now you may have one or two others, but uh, along the four names that you mentioned, I mean uh, th- that I mentioned, she was the best player out of all four of those. Uh, and and the way that she um, you know she had to tragically take that uh, three or four year period um, break, you know, stopped her from I think getting some titles not maybe not at Wimbledon but certainly many other titles in her career and would have probably changed the the uh, the the scope of the greatest of all time players discussion. But uh, but putting that aside, just taking in, just taking into consideration. The, uh, the 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 Wimbledon tournament, um, you know, Monica Seles stays around. In my opinion, uh, without injury, she might have had a, a title or two. But even if she didn't, Matt, even if she, you know, that that tragic occurrence never took place, and she stayed in the game and ended up not winning Wimbledon, it would have been very very surprising for me. You know, her her skills were 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 pretty good for uh, for. Um, for grass, despite the fact that people say, I've, I've heard some people argue otherwise, but with her backswing two-handed on both sides, uh, her quick preparation, her ability to, to, to move in place, you know, get ready for the ball quickly, take, take the racket back and sometimes even shorten the swing and her, the, the way she, she was able to hit the ball flat when needed, uh, as well as with top spin on lower balls. I think she would have. Uh, you know, I think she's the best player in the, to to never win Wimbledon. It's 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 quite surprising that she didn't win it to begin with, but uh, but uh, plus you add the tragic incident, and um, it's just really a shame that Monica Seles doesn't have Wimbledon title in her uh, CV. Absolutely, and and I, and I very much agree with you, Mert, because it, when I think of Monica Seles, I think of a very compact game. You know, it, it was not an. Uh, clunky, inefficient game. I mean, her, her stroke production, her ability to get to the ball, as you outlined, I mean, that, that is a very grass-compatible style of play. Now, now when we're talking Monica Seles at Wimbledon, we have to bring up the obvious controversy from 1992 and the, the limits on her uh, 
uh, on her uh, verb vocal utterances. And, you know, this is like this. This is the sanction that Maria Sharapova never had. Uh, it's a great what if in, in terms of tennis history. You know, what if Monica Seles's uh, vocal vocalized outpourings uh, were not policed? First, do you think she wins that 92 final against Steffi Graf? And second, do you think that uh, just the larger course of, of, of her career, you know, she did come back in the mid 1990s. Let's say her. She was never she had never been policed. Do you think that uh, when she returns to women's tennis in the mid 1990s, you know, after the, the stabbing, do you think that anything's different if, if no one ever tries to clamp down on her in the early 1990s? Well, I'm sure it bothered her. And and it and that it was a ridiculous rule back then. And today it sounds even more absurd. And uh, of course, it must have affected our game somewhat. I do, I, I do not like, uh, I do not like in general, and, and I know that's not what you're meaning, but I do not like in general the idea of thinking, well, you know, if that little rule, I, I think she's professional enough, Matt, to, uh, to adjust to that as unfair as it seems. She's professional enough and good, good enough to, to, to be able to adjust to that uh, restriction and still, a, and still win majors. So um, um, yes, I think it would have made a difference for sure. You know, not to have that nagging in the back of your mind. I'm not sure though. I would I would mention that as one of the, you know, if we were to list 15, 15 factors why she never won Wimbledon, that would be very low. I mean, it would be there, but it would be very low on that on on that list. I think it was just a matter of moment. Uh, before she she finally won it, you know, with that with those kind of uh, hard hits, quick preparation and anticipation, uh, it would have been shocking had had Celis not been uh, stabbed and and she didn't win Wimbledon. That would have been shocking to me. Okay, gotta spend at least one moment on Justine Enna uh, because of the number of majors that she won. I mean, and this is not no offense to Gabriela Sabatini and Hanna Monvikova also major champions and great tennis players in their own right. But I mean, Enna and Salas, I think, exist in a higher uh, tier uh, than uh, Malikova and Sabatini. And so with Enna, um, when she lost to uh, Marion Bartoli, where would you rate that in the annals of all-time open-era upsets in semifinals or finals uh, of Very, major tournaments? How, how, yeah. how high is that rate? Gosh, that's that's one of the highest ones, I would say. You know, that I, I wish um, uh, you know it would be fun to to make a, a, a list of um, you know all the incredible upsets over the years on the women's side. But that is that that's just a really really shocking uh, upset, you know, in my opinion. Uh, Hennis yeah. should not. Uh, nobody thought that was going to happen. I mean, I, I it never passed through the corner of my mind that that would be the case. And yet it happened. I will say this about Hennen though, in, in terms, in, if we, if, you know, in, if the discussion is who is the best player, um, you know, never to, you know, never to win, uh, the, to win Wimbledon. I think the era that she played in 2000s uh, on, on, on a fast surface, you know, regardless of the adjustments that we talked about earlier, in the late uh, 1990s and, and early 2000s in terms of ball and surface. Uh, I do think that uh, with her one-hander 
was a liability on grass against against the hard hitters over time. You know, and the, the ball just came so fast that uh, her backhand, as beautiful as it is, and I know people just love to revel in uh, Justin Hennan's uh, backhand, and I do too. But uh, it's it, technically the the preparation she needed to t- she needed a backswing. Um, her slice wasn't as crafty as uh, some of the be- you know best slices of the of the open era, although it was very good. Don't get me wrong. But for 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 grass and for the kind of powerful players that she had to face, I think you know again Monica Seles's game was better suited for uh, for to, to win even on faster grass surface. Than uh, than Justin Hennis was uh, was was uh, in the 2000s, but uh, yes, I mean she's right up there, of course. You know, we Justin Hennis is uh, it's it's quite shocking that she hasn't won Wimbledon either. All right, and this so this is our final topic, Mert, and this has been fabulous as it always is with you. Um, but uh, the best women's tennis performer at Wimbledon in the Open era, and of course, I preface this by saying that everyone's definition or our or standards of quote unquote best are going to differ and so before you give your answer i think you you know it's obvious that you need to define your own parameters of what best means so um pick apart this i think i think it comes down to a few obvious choices uh so like the, the answer might not be mind-blowing getting at the a sense of the standards and the and what goes into your formulations might be really the the more interesting part for our audience. Yeah, the couple of things that I that I keep in mind when I especially if we're talking about a specific tournament here, not uh, not uh, in general in tennis, but one tournament, you know, we're centering the discussion around one tournament which is Wimbledon here and uh, you know, a couple of things that 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 we need to do is that we need to put aside who is the best player of all times or greatest player of all times when we're considering a more strict parameters like this. And uh, so you, well, you, who you have here as the best performer at Wimbledon in the open era might not be the same as the best player of all times or the best player that you have in your mind, uh, period. And, and also you need to differentiate things like, uh, you know, some people like to include doubles in, in, in the equation. I, I don't. I, I'd like to separate doubles and singles. Uh, I know that, for example, Martina uh, Navratilova, if we were to include doubles in the equation, would be hands down the best player ever uh, you know, in, in, uh, in open era Wimbledon, without a question, you know, without anybody close by. So you, know, you would have to put uh, Martina there. But I personally like to look at singles only. I'd like to separate the two because I also find it a little bit, um, I, I don't feel comfortable, Matt, saying, you know, including doubles in someone's accomplishments and counting it as that person's accomplishment when there's another player that, that, that that's 50% of that team. I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of that, you know. Uh, so Martina had to win those titles with someone else playing next to her. So if, I'm go- if we're going to talk about best performer at Wimbledon, one player, I'd like to separate the doubles too. So if you just, by, by just looking at the numbers, okay, uh, you would think, you, you, it's a very close call between Martina Navratilova, Steffi Graf, and Serena Williams. You know, 
But uh, but I'm going to still even just counting singles, I'm going to put I'm going to give a slight edge to Martina here as the best performer at Wimbledon in the Open era. And for second place, it's a very close call between Graf and Serena. And Graf has seven titles. Serena has six. Graf, uh, you know, I believe has nine finals. Serena has eleven finals. So Graf uh, Graf has one more title. But I'm going to give the, the the number two spot, and I, we're talking very close here between Martina, uh, the Serena, and Graf. I'm going to give the second spot to Serena, because for me the deciding factor is Venus Williams's presence in the 2000s at, at Wimbledon. Again, we're talking about Wimbledon here. We're, we have, we have to block out all the other tournaments. Okay, we're talking about Wimbledon, and and Venus of 2000s. If we had to consider open era by portions, the Venus of the, in the decade, in the, in the decade of 2000s, was phenomenal. And I would have a hard time arguing against the Venus of 2000s if we were keeping the discussion centered on who is the best performer at Wimbledon if we were to go by decades. I mean, I'd take Venus in, at Wimbledon in the year 2000s over any competitor, you know, the, the, at, the, at, at, at their best day, at their best decade. But if we're going to take the all of Wimbledon all together um, throughout the Open era, I'm putting Martina Navratilova at one, and uh, I'm putting Serena Williams at two, Steffi Graf at three, and I'm talking by you know by very small margins. And I would like to mention Venus Williams. Uh, especially the Venus of 2000s as just a, a phenomenal player. But I completely understand the urge to put, um, uh, for example, you know, you would, you, I completely understand the urge to put, for example, Serena over Venus because of Serena's career accomplishments. But uh, if, you know, Venus's five titles in the 2000s, it's just uh, outrageous. And uh, and then I then round up uh, you know, the top five with uh, Chris Everett as the number five. Okay, and so let's let's just apply a finer uh, point to to these these rankings. I, I would it would it be fair to assume that longevity, quality of longevity is is the main factor in that? Because with Martina, for instance, you're talking about a, a woman who made finals at Wimbledon. 16 years apart, 1978, uh, and, and, and then in 1994 against Conchita Martinez. Is that the number one factor in, in your rankings, or is it something else? Yes, and the fact that she won it nine times, and uh, she won four of those without losing a set. Uh, it's just a, a, a utter dominance that started in the late 70s and lasted all the way through the 80s, the last one coming at 1990. She won six of them consecutively. The next, the, the next one is Graf with three consecutive ones, and uh, it's just a, it's the it's phenomenal what she has accomplished in the in the. So yeah, longevity is is maybe the starting point, but if you stop it at longevity, it would it would do Martina an injustice. You know what what has she done during that time is also just as impressive. You know, just, oh, yeah. just, well, that's, well, that's why I mentioned the quality of longevity, 
Yes, that's right. You are right. It's not just hanging around for a long time. It's doing a lot within an expanded time frame. And I'm assuming that that's why Serena gets the microscopic edge over Groff, just that she's been able to continue into her mid to late 30s, whereas Groff, you know, that 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 uh, her her retirement after the 1999 final against Davenport, her retirement from the sport, not not from a match, but from the sport. Uh, caught a lot of people off guard because there was a sense that, you know, she still had a lot to offer, but it was just, you know, she felt content to hang it up and move on to the next phase of her life. Yes, and and this is why, you know, again, Serena longevity and also what, uh, the the deciding factor. I mean, what you have to keep in mind too, and you know, of course, this is all subjective. I completely understand, and uh, the reason why I have Serena. You know, ahead of Graf again, Serena had to deal with the with Venus of two thousands. I don't think any of the other player, any of the players that we mentioned, dealt with another player at that level at Wimbledon for that long a period of time. You know, the Venus in the in the two thousands, not just two thousand to two thousand four or to two thousand five to two thousand eight. I'm talking two thousand all the way to two thousand ten. Venus was a power to, to reckon with. And, and Serena's years, some of her best years, coincided with that. And she had to, she had to overcome Venus. Steffi didn't have to uh, overcome anybody of the caliber of Venus in the 2000s. As much as we praise Chris Evert, okay, she was, she was, and she was a formidable rival to Martin Navratilova, maybe the best rivalry of her times. So I'm not disputing that. But Chris Evert was not as daunting an opponent to Martina Navratilova on grass as Venus was to Serena in that 10-year period. So I, I, this is why I'm, I'm putting Serena right behind Navratilova, ahead of Graf, in, uh, you know, in, in, in my count. I know it's subjective, it's all judgmental, and, uh, and, and this is one thing that uh, people have to keep in mind when they, when they engage in this type of best of discussions or greatest of all times discussion. There's no, there are no facts here. You know, we're talking about players uh, from different uh, time periods, and there are no, you know, if you if you finish your sentence with, well, such and such is better, and that's a fact, well, you just lose, you know, a majority of your cred- credibility right there. No, that's not a fact. That's just a subjective opinion, and it's all judgmental. But that's, you know, you ask my opinion, then that's where I stand. Yeah, well, there are lots of numerical facts, but the weight that we give to each individual numerical fact, that is that is now and always will be a subjective exercise. Um, Mert Ertunga, this has been wonderful. It's been a great way uh, for me to have middle Sunday therapy, you know, something good, something wonderful. Uh, and then, uh, Matt, one second. You don't get you don't get to go away like this. You you, you have to throw yourself under the bus, too. Well, it was, it was uh Sorry to cut in the middle, but who's your uh, who's your best player or best performer, open air at Wimbledon? Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I think it has I think it has to be Martina, and I think that uh, you know, in in many ways, uh, I mean, I think I think you make a lot of salient points. It's not so much I have the exact same view as you do. It's just more of a matter of Serena in the latter half, you know, in the 2010s. Uh, after Venus receded, uh, at Serena in the 2010s, and then Groff in a world without Celis and without a in her prime Navratilova, 
they, they did not have the foremost rivals that Martina did. So Martina did what she did with a foremost rival on the on the other side of the net more than Groff and Serena. So it's not as though uh, Serena didn't have a rival. As you said, she had Venus in the 2000s. But um, for a large chunk of her Wimbledon dominance and the titles that she won uh, in the latter uh, portion of her career, she didn't have that foremost rival. Uh, Martina had Everett for a number of years and then Groff in 87, a, a very crucial match. You know, if we if we imagine a Wimbledon reality in which Groff had beaten Martina in that 87 final, uh, you know, and there wasn't a tug of war, you know, if Groff if Groff had never had to suffer defeat to Navratilova before then winning in 88 and 89, um, you know, if Groff had just been able to dominate from the start in 87, I think it would it would be very different. But I think because Martina was at least able to hold off Steffi that one year after, you know, attaining Wimbledon supremacy over Everett for nearly a decade, uh, I, I think it's still safe to say that for me, from my point of view, that that it's Martina. If you wanted, though, to say that it was Steffi or uh, Serena, though, I mean, I wouldn't put up a big fight because their their achievements are monumental in their own right. Uh, Groff being able to do all that she did uh, as a baseliner and then Serena setting her own standard and really becoming a better player deeper into her life than Martina. Um, I mean, in terms of singles, uh, you know, they have their own unique claims to greatness at the highest level. But I do, I do think that uh, that that Martina wins it very narrowly. Yes, the the six consecutive titles and four of them without losing a set really are are just uh, phenomenal. And and speaking of uh, uh, stupendous runs, uh, we should mention that Chris Evert played a total of fifty six majors uh, and reached semifinals of better in fifty two of them. That's from the beginning of her career all the way to the end. And it in is 18 her is the greatest fact about her career, I would yes, say. Yes, yes. And, 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 she, and she, in 18 Wimbledons that she played, she reached the semis or did better 17 times. Only once did she not reach Wimbledon semifinals. So she's, it's, it's just, those are phenomenal numbers. Yep. So, Mert Ertunga, um, hopefully we will be able on uh, middle Sunday of 2021 to have a Wimbledon tournament to actually talk about. But in 2020, this very rare range year, it, it was it was a, a great pleasure to be able to relive Wimbledon in the open era uh, on the women's side. So it, it really made this 4th of July weekend and this middle Sunday go down a lot easier for that. I and Sakib and everyone at uh, Tennis with an Accent we're very grateful to you for your perspective. Thanks so much. Thank you, Matt. Oh, delighted to be here. Uh, glad to speak to you guys. All right. Take care, Mert.